0: Well, this is the last Sunday that uh, I'm doing this God's Good Design. Thank you, Dean. God's Good Design, and God is a glorious God who has made the heavens and the earth, and in his good design, he has made us male and female. And so this morning, I'm going to give you a 20,000-foot overview of a subject that is, in our culture, very controversial. Uh, controversial, filled with animus and all types of daggers, and there might be some of that here today. So we're going to dive in, but it's a 20,000-foot view. God is gloriously good. I was reading this verse the other day, Psalm 119, 44 and 45, "I, I keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. A wide place is the place of blessing. A wide place is the place of certainty and conviction. A wide place is the place where there's no confusion. And so as, as we walk in the way of God's Word, and as we make His Word our guide, and as we say God is and He has spoken, we walk in a wide place, not a place of confusion, And so really our our beginning thought in this whole issue is is that God is and he has spoken. Or as Francis Schaeffer said years ago, about 40 years ago, he said, he is there and he is not silent. God is and he has spoken. The eternal God who is triune has spoken and he's given us his scripture. He's given us his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He's given us a scripture whereby the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It takes away the confusion. It gives us a place to stand with certainty and dignity. And and there's a book that was released about a year and a half ago by a young man named Russ Duthot, and and it was called Bad Religion, entitled Bad Religion. Duthot is a Pentecostal who's become a Roman Catholic, and his book is outstanding in 92% of the places. But on, on the cover, it said this, it says that, he says, America's problem isn't too much religion, rather it's bad religion. Thus, the title of the book, Bad Religion. He said, the, the slow motion collapse of traditional faith and the rise of a variety of pseudo-Christianities that stroke our egos, indulge our follies, and encourage our worst impulses. And later in the book, he says this, he says, The true faith includes a belief in the divine inspiration and authority of a particular set of sacred scriptures called the Old and New Testaments, with no additional revelations added on and nothing papered over or rejected. It includes adherence to the moral vision encoded in the Ten Commandments and expanded and deepened in the New Testament a rejection of violence and cruelty and a deep suspicion of worldly wealth and power and a heavy stress on personal purity. It is the belief that there exists a faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, Jude verse 3, and that the core of Christianity is an inheritance from the first apostles rather than being something that every believer can and should develop for himself. God is, and God has spoken. He is there, he is not silent. We we serve before God who has given us his word, therefore. We we go back to this concept of God's good design versus the impersonal plus time plus chance. God is, he has spoken, all things have been been made by Christ, through Christ, before Christ, and in Christ, all things hold together. God's good design versus the cacophonic nothingness God made us male and female versus a belief that identity sexually can be exchanged or changed or truncated God made us male and female God has said that sexual living is one man and one woman in a relationship called marriage It's not to be between men and women or groups of men and groups of women. It is to be practiced in marriage. There is a design there versus cacophony, versus disjointedness, versus confusion. God's good design, the Baptist faith, the message adopted in 2000, the 2000 version said that God has made us male and female, period. And it says this, thus gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. It's part of the goodness of God's creation. There's a statement in the worship guide called the Danvers Statement adopted in 1988 that deals with these very issues. And it says this, it says point number three, the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism. Now some of these words are big words. Feminist egalitarianism, which means a leveling of everything with accompanying distortions or neglect of the glad harmony. I love that. The glad harmony portrayed in Scripture between the loving, humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. The glad harmony. I want us to experience by the power of the Spirit under the authority of Scripture the glad harmony that God wants to bring. And see, that teaching should find an echo in our heart because we're made in the image of God. And we live in a day of confusion. Now, I told you, I've told you before, I enjoy March Madness. March Madness law lasts several weeks. And one of the greatest inventions ever made is the mute button because they have the same commercials time after time. And pretty soon you can always, you could. You could do the commercials by rote memory. So, I, but there was a PowerAid commercial that just made me every time it came on. I want to stand up and evangelically curse, um, if that's possible. <laughs> anyway, the Powerade commercial showed um, a, a, a quick, short guy walking onto an inner or inner city playground. And says, "He says who can't? Who says I'm too short to play?" Well, I've seen a lot of short guards that were very good. And then he shows uh, a, a linebacker running to the ball, and he says, who says I can't develop speed so I can play football? Well, I've seen a lot of guys develop agility and quickness to play football. And then he showed an African-American skating up to an ice hockey net and saying, who says that my race can't play ice hockey? Well, of course, African-Americans play ice. Then he shows uh, uh, maybe 120-pound, 150-pound Young woman walking onto the wrestling mat at the high school said, Who says I have the wrong body? That's where I cussed. I said, Please, come on. Any 115 pound woman in high school wrestling a 115 pound man who has trained would be beaten in 3.2 milliseconds. I, I-, I played basketball in high school because I didn't have the intensity to wrestle. Those guys are tough. Don't don't ask women to do something that they're not supposed to do. Brittany Grenier. Did I say her name right? The Baylor basketball player. Somebody help me out here. Is it Griner? Griner, whatever. Tall, good good basketball. Baylor, good basketball player. There's a guy for the Dallas Mavericks named Mark Cuban, who's really a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey type guy. And he said, I may draft Brittany Grenier. And there was talk about that. And finally, somebody on ESPN, a female, wrote, give me a break. I said, thank you. Finally, somebody said, the emperor has no clothes. And she said, I love Brittany Grenier. She's a great athlete, but she cannot compete with men in the paint. Don't ask women to do things they're not supposed to. Let her participate in the WNBA and dominate. Don't, don't make her something she's not supposed to. Finally. But we live in such a culture that we're afraid for people to stand up and say, Powerade, that is a stupid commercial. I'm going to drink Gatorade till I die. You know? You know, don't, don't, don't be this leveler. God made us male and female. And that... Gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. There's a man named Karl Barth who said some, many famous things. One thing he said is this. He said, he said, you should always read the Bible with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. I mean, just a wonderful statement saying the Christian faith should be applicable. But what's happened in our culture, instead of reading you know, the newspaper through the lens of Scripture, we are reading the bible through the lens of the newspaper the zeitgeist the spirit of this age therefore we we have this is what lewis said c.s lewis said if you've lived many places and many times or many places you're not easily snickered by the local customs and he says therefore in some degree, you're immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours forth from the press and the microphone of our own age. So if, if you've thought and read through the ages, you're somewhat immune to the nonsense that pours forth from the press and the microphone of our age. That was said in 1947. And, and, and so he goes on, he talks about the problem of chronological snobbery which says that this age and this age only is dealing with ultimate issues. Some people call it the imperialism of the present. This age and this age only. So we, we, we say, hey, look at this, look at this cultural issue. Maybe we should respond this way because nobody in the history of the Western civilization has ever thought of this. And we live in a day and an age when, now, this is where I'm going to lose some of you not now, but in about 30 seconds. We live in a day and age when people are standing up in the church and saying it is okay, not only for homosexuals to marriage, but for homosexuals who are unrepentant, practicing homosexuals, okay, to be priests or pastors, which is a clear violation of Scripture. We've walked through that. And I think They use the same exegetical, and this. why I've I've had debates with guys, and they've just gotten mad at me about this, but I'm your pastor. They use the same exegetical format to support women as pastors. 1 Timothy 2 is very clear, and yet they say, well, Paul didn't know what we know. Whoa, whoa. He was an apostle commissioned by Christ who wrote inerrantly he knew more than I know. Be very careful that you're not seduced by the spirit of the age. The same exegetical bending. Be very careful. So I'm, I'll, I'll get you again, We're just going to come around again. This guy, reading about this guy recently, a guy named Thomas Platter. Lived in the 1600s, or excuse me, 1500s, Switzerland. Raised a poor beggar. He was a goat herder. He followed goats around, and they gave him some food or money if he protected the goats. And had an insatiable desire to learn. So he went to some of the major cities in Europe, where he would sit in on free lectures. And he would steal or beg for food and finally a, a local priest took him in and let him be the custodian of, of the cathedral but this is, where, this is where it really gets me he, he taught himself Latin, Greek and Hebrew that just kind of upsets me, I don't know about you I go, come on he taught himself Latin, Greek and Hebrew came to know Christ the gospel of grace, went back to his village as a young man and started debating the priest that he had known as a child about the gospel of grace and and as they debated he pulled out of his backpack the new testament and he kept saying show me what you're saying in the new testament just show me the priest said well and when they were they were debating and the priest said we need to pray to the saints and once again thomas pulled out his little new testament and he said, show me. And the priest said, well, I, I, I can't show you in the Bible. He says, then why do you pray to the saints? And the priest said this, he said, because my grandmama told me I should. And Thomas said, then your grandmama has become your Bible. <laughs> That's just a little biography. You can read it online, the biography of Thomas Platter. What a line it's not in scripture, but it's part of our culture, it's part of our familial heritage, then your grandmama or your culture has become your Bible and not the Word of God. And he went on and became a multi-talented man. He became a printer. And part of his claim to fame is that in 1536, he was given a little tome written by a 27-year-old budding theologian, and he printed the first edition of a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion by an unknown guy named John Calvin. Pretty cool life. Be people of the book. See, I want to see, instead of confusion, I want to see among us and in our homes, glad confidence. I think of, again, Psalm 119. It says this, verse 68... Just listen, listen to this. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. We step back and say, say God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uncreated, eternal God, you are good and you do good teach me your mind teach me your thoughts and here they are here they are because in your goodness you don't bring confusion you bring glad confidence you put us in a broad place where we can walk god's good design but in the garden of eden everything was turned upside down Sin entered the human race, and as a result, the scripture says this, you know it well, right at the first gospel promise in verse 15, the Lord God says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing and pain, you shall bring forth children. Thank God for epidurals, you know, it's helped out with that. Your desire, listen, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The result of the fall, the woman will desire to manipulate and browbeat and have the upper place, and the husband, when he's threatened, will dominate and, 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 and abuse his wife. That's part of the fall. And then he says, he says to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, because you didn't lead, Adam, because you didn't lead. And you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So so the fall brought incredible confusion. But in Christ there is a reversal of the fall so I'm just going to give you an overview now of men and women. It's going to be very brief, very quick, hopefully very pointed. First, men. If you look in your outline, there, there are two extremes that men fall into because of sin. Extreme number one is domination. Physically overpowering. Domination. The other extreme is passivity. We sit back, we do nothing. The, the, the answer to that in the power of the Holy Spirit is a servant leadership that's modeled after Christ. Servant leadership. Leadership, absolutely. But it's a servant leadership with a towel and a wash basin. It's not domination and it's certainly not passivity. It is leading as a servant. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the Lord says, I have a charge to bring against my people. And he he talks about what have, was bringing the charge, the people come back from the captivity, and they were worshiping, but they were play-acting, they were going through it by rote, they weren't really seeking God, and, and it, it, it showed us manifestations in a life of disobedience, and, and God says in Malachi chapter 2, he says, he says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, verse 14, why does he not? Answer, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with the por- with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, question mark, answer godly offspring. So guard yourselves. And, and God says, when my people get serious about me, there is a joy and there is a, a, a union in marriage that speaks of the glory of God. And then he says, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, one sure sign that you're walking in the power of Messiah King is found in chapter 4, the last Two verses, and behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, the coming of Messiah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now how do you know you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, men? Your hearts are turned toward nurturing and caring and loving your children. How do you know, young people, that you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and that you know Messiah King? Answer in part: You honor your father and your mother. So, you see, so, so men men are to be three. They, they are to provide, protect, and be pace setters. Men should work hard to provide. The Bible says the man who doesn't care for his own family is worse than an infidel. Ephesians 4 says you former thieves get to work so that you can have money to share with those who are in need. Do something useful with your life. You provide. That's what men are called to do. Provide. 27 years ago now we had a little baby in our house. A little baby boy. And He had a problem. I forgot what it was. Two o'clock in the morning, and lo and behold, we did not have what we needed to satisfy that urge. So my wife says, we got to get it. So I go to the 24-hour grocery store. I don't know which one it was. Two o'clock in the morning, I had the place to myself. And I turned the corner, and there stood a man stocking shelves that I'd met the previous year, two years ago. A successful real estate guy. Well known in the community. Well respected. I said, what? it was kind of blurry. Said, what, what? He said, well, the, the real estate market's tanked. I'm not making any money. I got three kids. I got to do something to meet their needs. My admiration for him just went Pow! And he came back and he became a successful real estate agent, but he was providing for his family. He was a man. He was a man. He was a servant leader men protect men are out front men take the bullet somebody breaks in your house you're sitting there with your family and they're got this wild look like methamphetamine look wild eyes and they've got they have got a gun here there's one bullet in the chamber i'm going to kill somebody here the man the man jumps up and takes the gun and puts it right here and says pull the trigger pal pull it he protects first Peter 3 7 in the bulletin says says that uh, it says this it says likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way the way of knowledge showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's just just a a quick statement. Peter says, you know, he says, men, he says, you live with your wives in the way of knowledge. As a physically weaker partner, that's what I think the verse means. She's a co-heir with you of the grace of God. You you do this so that nothing will hinder your worship. Because if you're mistreating your bride, you're not going to worship and if you do, it's going to be nothingness. You 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 protect her. You defend a man who uses his strength to ever, ever manipulate or hurt his wife should be visited by the deacons. In a late night visit. Ephesians 6, 4 says this about fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I think so talking about don't use your physical strength. Don't use your position of authority to browbeat, manipulate, put them down, but be tender. Martin Luther would talk about how as a young child, his father would beat him. And when God gave him He and Katie's six children, he said, I will never do that. He says, I will woo them as a gentle father. I will plead with them as a gentle father. Protect. Stand in the gap. And you say, over my dead body, spiritually and physically. You, You... you guard you then it says this is really your pace setter men your pace setters servant leaders of pace setters first timothy four, fifteen says be diligent in these matters timothy as a, as a young elder be diligent in these matters bible reading preaching exhortation be diligent in these matters give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress and I think that, that, that's, that's a pace setter. Everyone may see your progress, that you're, you're struggling to walk with the, in the way of Christ, that, that you gladly worship, that you're handling the Word of God rightly, but you're a pace setter. Men, we are pace setters. Somebody stands up and says to his corporation, his business group, his team, his family, this statement is never a leader. Don't do as I do, do as I say. That's not leadership. If you're a banker and you say to your board of directors, don't do as I do, do don't do as I do, do as I say, I, I, I skim a couple thousand bucks every other week, it's no big deal. You're, you're, you're in jail. A football coach who stands in front of his team and says, you know, don't, don't drink guys and yet he's drunk every weekend, he's not a leader. A father who says, you know, I, I want to honor Christ and he drops the kids off. On the Lord's day. He's not a leader. He's a passive man. I'm tired of passivity among men. And nothing thrills my heart more to see men who are servant leaders, who get it. Years ago, see, see to me, the whole issue of, of leadership is pace setting. In every area. Years ago, we had a president who got involved with a White House intern. And when it came out that it was was true, after he denied it, I said, people laughed at me, Uh, I said, this guy claims to be a Christ follower, he should resign and put himself under the spiritual leadership of some godly people and go to a prayer retreat center and, and really get his life together. He should resign. I said, if he would do that, he would raise leadership to a level that this country has not seen since George Washington. I think I was right. Of course, he didn't. But since then, we've had a congressman from New York, a Republican senator from Nevada, same thing. Republican senator from Louisiana, a Republican governor from this state, same thing. That is not leadership. That's not pace setting. That's standing up and saying, don't do as I do, do as I say, and it doesn't work. Now, all of us struggle, all of us stumble, but a godly man gets up and he keeps pressing on. He says, That's my desire. Now, all of us are married to imperfect people. Please don't misunderstand me. But, guys, let us say, I want to be a pace setter. Apostle Paul says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Wow. And so a man who understands this says, I I, I fight myself, I fight the flesh, myself, I I fight the world, I fight the devil. Therefore, I've got to worship. I've got to experience the fullness of the Spirit. I've got to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I've got to hold up the banner of Hebrews eleven six 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God, and everyone who draws near to God believes that he is, and he rewards those who seek him. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. You step back and say, I, 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 I think about this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, where the Apostle Paul says, you know, I beat my body. I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others and started churches and been on three missionary journeys and been snake bit and left for dead and beaten, with rods, after all that, I will not be disqualified for the prize. There's a self-watchfulness here. I need it, because I stumble and fall, but I want to get up and keep going. Men are pace setters. You See, you should be able to go to any elder in this church, any pastor and say, "Let me see your checkbook." Let me just live in your house for a few days and see how you talk to your wife and your kids. Let me ask around in the community what type of reputation you have with outsiders. What books are you reading? What's the inclination of your heart? You should. Now let's go to women that was painful enough let's go to women okay so so as a result of the fall that the two extremes for women are either they try to usurp the authority of the servant leader or they're involved in servility and i remember when this was being discussed in the 70s and 80s there was such a furor that that I i think at times we we verged in the church in the in the area of servility for women i thought this is weird because the Bible says in Ephesians 5 to be mutually submissive to one another. I've been reading and having discussions at seminary with guys saying, well, should the men keep the checkbook or the women? And I said, man, if your wife's a CPA, let her keep the checkbook. I said, well, my, my wife grew up working for, you know, Dale Earnhardt and the pit crew, her daddy did. and Should she look at the carburetor? Yes, I can't even find the carburetor. Let her look at it. You know it's just silly you get real silly but you usurp the authority you just or, or servility you know i've been in cultures where women have to walk six feet behind their husband and they wear a burka in hinduism same thing see jesus Jesus turned everything upside down. He came into a male-only culture, and his apostle wrote, there's neither male nor female in Jesus Christ. We're all equal in Jesus, spiritually speaking. Christ, the apostles, elevated women. So, servility. You're a co-heir of the grace of God. You're a helpmeet to your husband. Mutual decision-making. Yes, the husband's a servant leader, but you talk about it. You think about it. You, you pray about it together. In 2000, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted the Southern Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's in the bulletin. And I was there. I voted for it. I didn't realize that I was stepping into a booby trap because down in the statement, the... Kind of the third paragraph says that the marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people, and a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God given responsibility to provide for, protect, and lead his family. So that's good. Everybody likes that. The next sentence A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband. Really, the press acted like we had just committed high heresy. Submit herself graciously? People ask me, I said, we're just quoting Ephesians 5. We're not trying to be trendy. We're just quoting Ephesians 5. She's a co wear, help meet, but but there is servant leadership, not servility. A movie called Father of the Bride. You watch it, you just cry if you got a little girl. The father selling a house. If you remember the story of selling a house. To a Middle Eastern family, the husband's there negotiating the contract, very wealthy, and his wife's there. And as he's negotiating the contract, the wife would stand up and whisper something in his ear and he go, lock like the day, unlock like the day. And she would step back and do that, you know. Making and he said, Unlock like the day, lock like the day. she would step back. And that night, Steve Martin was meeting with his wife and Says, well, we did this. And she said, why did you do that? And he said, I locked the day." And she says, what are you doing? Said, it doesn't work here. And I said, amen, amen. We don't want servility. Co-air. Speaking of movies, let me just, I don't recommend movies very often. When I do, I usually get criticized, but I think I'm safe here. This is a great movie. Just came out. If you haven't seen it, it's a true story about a family, and it's just about a, a mom and a dad pulling together to guard and guide and protect their children it's a true story i mean if you're looking for a casual movie to watch as you fall asleep that's not the one this is like riding a roller coaster for two hours true story about the tsunami in thailand 2004 so so listen to this verse Um, proverbs 27 (laughs) verse 15 to 16 a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike some of you women say that's my life verse (laughs) A, 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 a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike to restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's hand you've ever been in a, a room at a beach house, maybe you're visiting somebody and you turn on the overhead fan and it's squeaky. You sit there and I said, I can't sleep. If I turn it off, I'm going to die of heat. If I leave it on, I can't sleep. Well, what's, what are the options here? That, that's a, that, that is, it's called Chinese water torture. That's what the writer's saying here. A quarrelsome wife is like continual dripping on a rainy day. Wives are to be a blessing to their husbands, their children. The Bible says a wife is to... I'm way over, aren't I? This is good. i don't have to talk about women now. <laughs> let, me, let me just... Wow. I'm, I'm just... Okay. Um... I'll just say two more things real quickly. Wives are to respect their husbands, Ephesians 5, Now listen, women, that means you build them up, you care for them, you pray, they'll become the man God has called them to be, okay? In public, you praise In fact, you should praise your husband so much in public before, before people meet him that they think you're married to a Nobel Prize winning physicist who's built like a Chicago Bear linebacker and looks like Brad Pitt. And so when they see him, they think, they don't say out loud, is that all there is to this? You know, they're they're just shocked. Build your husband up. I was talking to a young couple the other month, a wonderful young couple, love the Lord. And he said something that was kind of goofy. And she laughed and she said, you are a mess, but you're my mess. And I said, she gets it. She gets it. So, I want us to continue to return to the glad harmony that God has called us to. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. So, uh, Lord, we thank you for the day. We, we thank you that you are a God of design, not a God of cacophonic nothingness. We thank you that you made us male and female. And these things, this, this gender is part of the goodness of creation. It's not interchangeable. It's not up for grabs. It's not for discussion you are good and you do good therefore teach us your way that's our prayer and so we commit our way to you and we pray that you would guard and guide us Um, we pray that this day be filled with the wonder of christ in whose name we pray amen